0: Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from wherever you happen to be. Honored to have you along for the ride. We are in week five of a six-part series called The Essentials that's all about what someone really needs to believe if they're going to be a Christian. And to get us going today, uh, something kind of fun and different, I decided I wanted to tell you about an experience that I had many many moons ago at a karaoke bar. Not that I haven't been to karaoke bars since, full disclosure, but this one was a long time ago. Anyway, uh, it was midway through my junior year in college, uh, and some friends and I decided that we would pay a visit to a venue that had recently opened in downtown Ann Arbor. And as you might imagine, as in with any college town, there were a ton of of music performance majors running around. And so we reasoned that we were in for an incredible night of almost free entertainment. And that was the plan. But as it turned out, um, the evening was highly entertaining, but not for the reasons that we had initially anticipated. So here's kind of how it went down. Uh, We made the long walk from campus to Main Street and entered the bar shortly before the karaoke was scheduled to begin. And the place was packed, a whole bunch of people who had come just to watch, but then a few who were dressed to impress and clearly ready to sing. You got to put yourself, this is before like American Idol and The Voice, so this is kind of how we got our, had fun back then, right? Uh, there was even like a sign-up list where if you were one who had come to sing, you put your name down and you put down the song uh, that you wanted to perform. Uh, anyway, the time for the karaoke to begin eventually came, and uh, after a brief introduction, a sound rang out from the speakers. It's an unmistakable refrain. And I am telling you, everyone there was ready for a spiritual experience, okay? Because, of course, that is one of the greatest songs ever recorded. The excitement was palpable, and it was palpable until the moment the singer began to sing. Because as soon as sound began emanating from his mouth, the crowd recognized with horror that something had gone very, very wrong, okay? The dude singing had absolutely no business singing like anything ever, right? It was painful. But here's the thing. He didn't stop. He kept believing, okay? He belted out the whole song as if he were Steve Perry himself. And I'm telling you, in hindsight, this may very well have been the most traumatic experience of my young life up until that point, right? I mean, I had to endure an awful representation of one of the greatest songs of all time. And I wanted to start by sharing that story today because, well, at least from my perspective, something eerily similar Exists right now within Christianity. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, right now, there are more than a few admittedly well-intentioned Christians who are presenting a truly awful representation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So much so uh, that many people, and especially many young people, are no longer all that interested in becoming Christians. I mean, it was only a little over a week ago that I had a conversation about this with a guy in his late 20s at a Verizon store right here in town, or as I like to call it, the new version of the DMV. Have you been there lately? It was like, it was like two and a half hours, and we're in the app, and we're getting things authenticated. It was great. But anyway, uh, midway through his trying to decide if he could give me an additional discount because of where I worked, and I told him I was a pastor, the conversation took an abrupt turn. He began to talk to me about churches, specifically why he had absolutely no interest in ever visiting one again. Uh, and he, he said, honestly, the people I know who attend church aren't nearly as kind and loving and gracious and generous as the people I know who don't attend church. And as a pastor of 25 years, in response, all I could do was kind of go, mm. because I know he's not the only one who feels this way. In fact, um, I found a recent survey online, uh, which is probably source-wise only slightly better than Wikipedia, but you'll get the idea. This survey of non-Christians basically determined that about 87% of non-Christians, or at least those surveyed, thought Christians were judgmental, 85% hypocritical, 78% thought old-fashioned, and 75% too political. And again, the numbers are probably arguable, but but just, just to point out that if Christianity were a song... Many Christians aren't singing it very well right now. And and let's be honest, that's a big challenge when it comes to introducing people to the good news of Jesus and what he accomplished when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. It's a really big challenge. Okay, so now that I've got us all concerned about the future of the Christian faith, I have good news for you, okay? And, And this really is good news. And it goes like this, even though it surprises some people, A favorable view of Christians is not one of the essentials of the Christian faith. Again, a favorable view of Christians is not one of the essentials of the Christian faith. It's not. And that actually makes sense if you think about it. I mean, we wouldn't blame the writer of Don't Stop Believing" for a random guy in Ann Arbor absolutely butchering his song at a karaoke bar, right? But see, that's what often happens with regards to Christianity, people reject Jesus because of the behavior of his followers, and I think that's both tragic and unnecessary. Because when you see the beauty and the love that drove God to send His one and only Son for us, the message of the cross is practically irresistible. Okay, so now that said, um, what I want to uh, what I want to do is return to the question that really drives this entire series forward. And if you've been with us, you already know the question, but it goes like this. So kind of given this whole, you know, having a positive opinion of Christians is not essential, what beliefs are essential to the Christian faith? Well, what must someone affirm in order to be a Christian? What's what's essential and then what isn't? And uh, in case you're joining us for the first time today and we're honored, we always have new people joining us almost every weekend, um, I want you to know that in this series we've already covered what I believe to be four essentials of the Christian faith. And no surprise, they all have to do with Jesus. So in week one, uh, we noted that Jesus is God's son and our king. In other words, Christians must believe that Jesus was and Jesus is the son of God who was sent by God and who will one day rule all people in the kingdom of God. That was week one. Then then in week two, we reflected on the absolutely incredible reality that Jesus came to show us what God is like. In other words, we said, when you find yourself thinking about God, both what he's like and how he feels about you, well, then according to Jesus, you should think about him because he came to illustrate and demonstrate in flesh and blood what God the Father is like. So that was week two. And then in week three, we explored the incredible reality. That Jesus came to do what only he could do. We noted that Jesus came to solve a problem that really only he could solve. He came to get right what the first people got wrong. And then then finally, last week, we said this, that uh, because of God's desire for justice, Jesus had to die for our sins. Like, he didn't just die for our sins. He had to die for our sins. That was the only way for us to find relationship with our creator again. And if you missed any of these talks, you can catch up on our website. And I really encourage you to do this. I think it's well worth your time. But uh, with the time that remains today, we get get to unpack still another essential of the Christian faith. And to get us going, um, much like every week in this series, I want to ask you a question. And this is a question that I'm pretty sure all of us have asked at one time or another. And if you haven't asked it, I can almost guarantee you your teenage son or daughter has asked you this question before. And it goes like this. Is church participation essential? In other words, I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure I want to go to church. So if somebody is serious about pursuing a relationship with God through Jesus, is it essential that they gather regularly with other people who are serious about following Jesus? And it's a great question. And I mean, though you probably never thought about it, there are some incredibly strong forces within our culture right now that are sort of inadvertently conspiring to upend the rhythms Of regular church gathering. I mean, technology like YouTube and Zoom have made in-person gathering in general increasingly optional. Even though Zoom, that somebody emails me and is like, hey, will you want to Zoom? My categorical answer, no. I still have some pandemic stuff I'm working through with my counselor says I'm doing better. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, and I think that's why, because of all this technology and access and sort of decentralized and upending our rhythms, that's why so many Christians in our moment here have come to view physical gathering of the church as a non-essential. In fact, when I was prepping for today, I found a recent survey that showed that between the end of 2010 and then the end of 2020, so over a 10-year period of time, Christians who were a regular part of a church gathering dropped by almost 25%. And you don't have to think about it very long to realize that that is not a good omen, right? That's, that shows us things are not trending in the right direction. So again, the question is more relevant than ever. Is church participation essential if you want to follow Jesus? Or, or, or maybe is there a version of the Christian faith that can be practiced more or less alone? And uh, in order to begin to answer that question, what I want to do is briefly return to an account from the life of Jesus that we actually unpacked a bit earlier in this series. It's a record of the day that Jesus hiked his first disciples some 12 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, where they generally lived, in order to have a conversation with them. And the conversation that day began with this question Jesus looked at these Jewish disciples, young men, and he said, Who do people say that the Son of Man? is. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the title Son of Man was a reference to someone described, kind of a mystical someone, described by the Old Testament prophet Daniel as someone who God would one day give authority and then who would subsequently be worshipped by all the people on earth. And so Jesus says to these guys, hey, you know, who do people say the Son of Man is? It's almost like a theological question. And in response, his disciples answered. They said, well, some say John the Baptist. That's Jesus' cousin. He had recently been beheaded by King Herod the Great, or King Herod, rather. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, Jesus, people, you know, seem to believe that the Son of Man was one of Israel's greatest prophets. And then Jesus turned to them and asked them, who do you say that I am? In other words, guys, after all you've seen, after all you've heard, after all you've experienced, What have you concluded about me? Who am I? And in response, Jesus' disciple Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, Jesus said, um, Peter said, Jesus, you're the one who God promised to send generations ago in order to lead your people to freedom. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. In fact, more than that, Jesus, I believe you are the son of man. You're God's son and our final king. You're the one to whom we will ultimately surrender and worship. And in response, and this really should give us chills if we're paying attention, Jesus essentially looks at Peter and he says, you're right. And then he said this, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, Peter, I'm going to build my church on the proclamation that you just made that I'm God's final king and I'm the ultimate authority. And obviously, that's awesome. We talked about that a lot in week one. But if you think about it here, what did Jesus mean when he used the word church? Like, what did Jesus think about when he thought about church? And in order to answer that question, I need to remind you of something that is super easy to forget because of the way we get our Bibles like at the bookstore or Amazon and it comes to us bound and all in English. But... The accounts of Jesus' life weren't originally written in English, they were written in ancient Greek. And as it turns out, the Greek word translated church here wasn't originally a religious word, it was a word that referred to an assembly of people, often in a political context in ancient Greece. It's the word ekklesia, and as best we can tell, the best way to translate it, according to scholars, is gathering. In other words, When Jesus thought about his church that day with his first disciples, he imagined gatherings of people all over the world who would celebrate and proclaim who he was, what he did, and what he taught. All that to say, in the beginning, Jesus intended his church to be gatherings or congregations of people and not isolated individuals, gatherings of people who saw themselves collectively on a mission to reflect the love and grace of God to a world that was desperately in need of some good news. And and that is undeniable when you study the text, but, but it also raises the question of why. I mean, why was community so essential to what Jesus had in mind? I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but being in community with other people, especially people you didn't necessarily choose to be in community with, can be a real challenge. Like, we don't always agree with everybody that we're in community with, and we don't always like everybody that we're in community with, and we don't always share their priorities. And, and, and so why would God want us to gather in community as we seek to follow Jesus? Wouldn't it be way easier if we just did it alone? And as it turns out, there is a really good answer to that question. In fact, um, I love how it was articulated in a book called Connecting by a guy named Larry Crabb. And I read this book, so you don't have to. You're welcome to. But anyway, here's the best line in the whole book. He says this. It's like Cliff Notes even better. He says, the absolute center of what God does to help us change is to reveal himself to us, to give us a taste of what he's really like. And a critical element in revealing that process is to place us in a community of people who are enough like him, not perfectly like him, but enough like him to give us that taste firsthand. In other words, in order to help us become more like Jesus, God often leverages our participation in a community of people gathered together because of their shared belief In Jesus. In fact, community is so essential to Jesus' vision for his followers that the writer of a New Testament uh, document we call Hebrews wrote the following encouragement to a group of early Christians living only a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what he said to these, these, these people. He said, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So Jesus wants his followers to love more and to do more good things. And he says, so let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And that word spur in the Greek is really interesting because it can be translated to encourage or to stir up or to irritate. And you're like, aha, I get that. You know what I mean? Yeah, so we're going to irritate one another. There we go. That, That makes sense. So to encourage, stir up, irritate, agitate or provoke, basically, by using this this term, the author of Hebrews articulated his desire for followers of Jesus to be in one another's lives to the point that when we see someone struggling with something that Jesus would want them to do, like forgive someone who hurt them, or to demonstrate generosity, or to love their enemies, then they can intervene And agitate them or spur them on or encourage them to do what they know that they should do. They may actually change when they're in community in a way that they wouldn't change if they were in isolation. So it's almost like the author of Hebrews calls a huddle with this young Christian church gathering and says to them, listen... The Christian life isn't simply about an individual believing the right things about what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross or rose from the grave. It's about you entering into and participating in authentic, appropriately vulnerable community with other followers of Jesus in which you can spur one another on to love and serve and give and forgive just like Jesus loved and served and gave and forgave. He said, that's what Jesus has in mind for his church. And and as the author of Hebrews continued to write, he noted that in order to cultivate these sorts of relationships, the relationships that Jesus intended for his followers where we'd be in one another's lives, he told them that they are to not, and look at this, give up meeting together, and I love this, as some are in the habit of doing. Apparently teenagers telling their parents they didn't want to go to church has been around for thousands of years. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And I remember back when I was in high school, um, there was a pastor who used this verse to encourage us to come to church, to sit in a row, and to listen to him teach. And obviously, I'm not opposed to that sort of thing. Um, It's not a bad deal, but I don't really think that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. Because of what he said next, He says, so you don't want to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but he says, encourage one another. It's almost like he says, listen, followers of Jesus can't afford to stop gathering together because they need to be in each other's lives if they're going to encourage one another. And I love the word encourage that he uses in this verse. Because what it means to encourage someone is to instill courage in them. They're at a spot where they need more courage and you tell them they can borrow some of yours. And given the context, that makes sense. I mean, these are ancient Christians trying to live out a new way, the way of Jesus, in a pagan culture that didn't understand. So it took courage to stand out because of your faith in Jesus. It was true then and it's true now. It takes real courage to live out your faith today at work and in your neighborhood and at your school. I mean, it, it takes courage to live out your faith when you're attending a family Thanksgiving gathering that you honestly would rather not be attending. It takes courage to do the right thing and the hard thing and the selfless thing and the generous thing. It takes courage. And we don't often have that courage on our own. And so, so like the author of Hebrews says, listen, you need to be in community with one another so they can recourage you when you need it. And it's so powerful, if you've tasted it, that's why Jesus intended the life of his followers to be a one another thing. If we're going to grow to be more like Jesus, if we're going to do the things that we know we should do, we need one another. But I actually think there's something else here that's worth uh, noting as well, because because, I mean, I've been a pastor now for like two and a half decades, which is a long time. I think about that. I'm like, whoa, right? But, but over the years, I've noticed that there seems to be a strong correlation between someone's connection to a Christian community, not necessarily anyone I'm a part of, but the Christian community that they've chosen, and their faithfulness to practicing the way of Jesus. And, and you may have noticed this too. Um, I mean, maybe you've even noticed this in your own life. Maybe for some of you, uh, you had a season where you drifted away from your faith after drifting away from your community of faith. And we're thrilled that you're back, by the way. Um, But if you were to tell the story, you say, well, you know, I I guess I bailed because there, there was a relational conflict. It just kept getting hotter and hotter. And I finally threw my hands up and said, this isn't worth it. Or maybe it was more practical. Maybe you like, graduated from college, you were very active in a community of faith, and you moved to a new city, and you didn't really know anybody, and you were sort of networking, and you spent all your time networking, and you never really grounded in a faith community. Or, or maybe you just disengaged from gathering with your community of faith during the pandemic, and we all kind of did, right? Because we couldn't really gather, and that just kind of became your habit for a season. But for whatever reason, you, you, you were no longer regularly surrounded by other people who shared your faith. And if you're honest, your faith, it kind of went out of focus. And as that happened, it was a slow erosion. It wasn't like you woke up one morning and made a decision, but there was no one in your inner circle to spur you on to do what you know that you should do, but perhaps you didn't have the courage to do. And I've had conversations with people that this has been their story over the years, and they all say the same thing. They always say, well, you know, initially I thought, well, this is no big deal. I can read my Bible on my own. I mean, I have like 13 Bibles because every time there's a milestone in my life, people give me Bibles, right? So I got Bibles, and I can watch church online. That's great. And I don't really need other people to help me as I pursue my faith. But see, over time, they would tell you that their lack of relational connection with other admittedly imperfect, sometimes annoying followers of Jesus began to impact how they thought about life and faith. It really seems like if you abandon real, authentic, appropriately vulnerable community with other Jesus followers who know you and who are known by you, but it seems really likely you're going to eventually drift away from your faith as well. And eventually you won't have the courage to do the things that you know you should do anymore. We, we need one another. And that's why, you know, in Jesus' design and his intention for his church, Christian community is where, as individuals, we're challenged and encouraged. It's where we're reminded of our tendencies to be self-focused and short-sighted because we all have those tendencies. It's where our story is known and we come to know the story of others. Not the highlight reel, but the real stories Christian community is is to be a place where where we can be honest about our doubts and our struggles and our questions. It should be the safest place to have those conversations. You you might even say that as Jesus intended it, like if you miss community with other believers, you kind of miss the point of what he was after as far as our life here on earth. Not not our afterlife, but our life here. And now I, I think that's why the author of Hebrews wrote what he did. I think some early Christians had stopped meeting together with other believers. And they were, you know, they were probably doing it for the same reasons that we do it. They were tired of the drama or things got messy or things got weird or they were just tired and got busy and they decided it just wasn't worth the time anymore. Or, or maybe they, they had an experience where they became exhausted with someone in their community who was needy to the point that they left each interaction with them feeling like life had gotten sucked out of them. And they probably reached a point where they thought, you know, maybe it's just easier if it was just God and me. But, but I'm telling you, to give in to that impulse is to miss the point. The Christian life isn't intended to be done alone. And so here's my question for you. And, and it's actually a great question wherever you find yourself on, on the spiritual journey. Maybe you're, you're, this is your first Sunday at Keystone and we're so honored that you're here and you're just kind of kicking the tires. You're asking questions about Jesus. Um, and maybe you've been here for decades. Uh, but the question goes like this. I mean, as, as of right now, is anyone currently spurring you on to live out your faith? Do you have people in your life who are encouraging you and challenging you when they sense that you need it? Have you given anyone in your life permission to do that? Because in our cultural moment, people are so defensive. It's like no one's gonna speak truth to us unless we invite it. Like, hey, I need you to speak truth to me and I would love permission to speak truth to you. But do you have anyone like that in your life? Does anyone have that kind of access to you? Or is there an environment in your life that we're regularly matters of faith come up naturally. And, and if not, I just, you know, because I care about you, I want to challenge you to find a group of people with whom you can share your faith journey. And uh, if that feels like an overwhelming task, I have some good news because coming in the new year, so we're not going to bug you right now for the holidays. I wanted to sign everybody up today for groups, but they were like, no, because it's Thanksgiving and everyone will think you're weird. Okay, fine. In the new year, the new beginning, right, we're going to have a whole bunch of new opportunities for you uh, to get connected to one another, and when these opportunities arise, I mean, I just encourage you take them, plug in. If it doesn't, where the first one you try doesn't work, it doesn't mean Christian community doesn't work. It means that particular thing didn't work for you, and we have other options because we want to make sure you have some people. Your faith and your life will never be the same. And so, back to our question: Is church participation essential? I would argue that if anything in you wants to present the beautiful Jesus that really is to our world, this is so incredibly essential. I would, I would even say, it's, it's in some ways it's more essential than it's ever been because we live in a, a society that is ever more connected and yet ever more isolated at the same time. It's just so essential. And and if if, if you want to understand why, I would just encourage you to show up, not just physically, but relationally and emotionally in the lives of some other believers. Show up for them, show up for their families. Jesus knew that we would need one another in order to pursue our faith. And that's why he passed his movement on not to individuals, but to gatherings, to churches, Because as it turns out, when it comes to the Christian life, community is essential. And uh, we'll pick up our conversation next week. But for now, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And uh, before I do, if you came into this space and you just need to talk to somebody, um, maybe about connecting in community, but maybe you just have something on your heart, we would love to meet you under the screen to the left after I dismiss. But for the rest of us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of one another. Thank you for the network of relationships at the heart of this church. And I pray that in the coming months, many, many more would find people here that they could journey with as they follow the way of Jesus. We are here because 2,000 years ago, you sent your one and only son in a gift of love and grace that is absolutely breathtaking, and his death on the cross and that first Easter Sunday literally changed the course of human history, and for that, we are ever thankful. We praise you for who you are and for what you have done for us, and we ask that you would bless us this week as we try to reflect the love and the light of your son, in our families, and in our community, and in this world. So we praise you and we bless you in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.